Hello, I'm Laura Jays and welcome to the PwC Federal Budget Podcast. The past 12 months has prompted a remarkable acceleration towards a new future of work. Challenges have been many and varied, but the government's measures to support job creation for individuals, regions and industries were big steps in the right direction. I caught up with PwC's National Workplace Law Lead, Bryony Bins, and Future of Work Lead, Dr Ben Hamer, to discuss how how Australia is going when it comes to reducing our skills gap, where to next for job seeker and job keeper, and how the economy is coping without skilled migration. So, what were the big winners in the budget for workforce, and where did it miss the mark? Let's find out. Ben and Briony, thanks so much for your time. Lots in this budget. The government's focus is jobs. What does this budget mean for work and workers, Ben? Yeah, Laura, jobs and skills is absolutely front and centre of this budget. And it's clear that the government is looking towards the jobs and skills agenda to drive the post-pandemic rebuild. And I think that they're coming off a really strong base when we think about what was achieved off the back of the last budget towards the end of last year. Um, So we saw 74,000 more jobs created than there were pre-pandemic. And unemployment, which was once forecast by Treasury to exceed 15%, is now sitting at 5.6%. So looking forwards and in the context of this budget, it's really about as our economic position and the job market outlook starts to stabilise, going about repairing some of the cracks uh, or the gaps that might have been exposed. And our take is the government have done a pretty good job of doing this with the recently announced budget, which looks to create 250,000 jobs over the next two years. Bryony, the government has made it very clear that it wants an unemployment rate with a four in front of it. Does this budget do that in creating new opportunities or is it using the template of old? I think it's probably somewhere in between. So in terms of creating new opportunities, there's absolutely a focus on trying to get certain cohorts of our workforce or our potential workforce back working, particularly in relation to underemployed people. Um, And so we've really had a focus on areas that need it for other reasons as well, uh, like aged care and childcare. So we've seen a big push towards investment, towards a women's agenda, which is great to see. But there's a question as to whether or not we're seeing really any, you know, real underlying strategic shift or more sort of um, funding of the symptoms rather than underlying causes to underemployment. Um, and particularly in respect of women's participation. So has it been a big reforming budget when it comes to creating opportunities in jobs? It's still looking at those traditional employment areas, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So in terms of reform, I think no, reform's not the right word to to use here and and perhaps not a fair word to use either. Um, So if we take aged care as an industry, for example, so massive investment into aged care, Um, both to address underlying issues that were raised in in the Royal Commission. Um, But also, if we compare to the budget last year, which was very focused on industries that are male-dominated, so building and construction, infrastructure, etc. If you look at aged care, yes, we're pushing more funding towards aged care, which is a women-dominated industry. Um, but we're not really addressing systemic issues in relation to wages paid in that sector, for example. They're still low paid 
And the fact that we've got funding there for more places and more employment isn't going to change that. Ben, that said, if you had to pick a winner in this budget, who would it be? Yeah, look, I think that there are probably a lot of winners in this budget. In terms of uh, from a jobs and skills perspective, I would say that I agree with Bryony in the sense that it is somewhat short-term focused, so it doesn't have some of that structural reform in there that looks to focus on more secure, reliable employment or increases to wages. But there are quite a lot of winners in terms of women to try and drive up female participation, uh, some of those key industries that were impacted by the pandemic, although some would argue potentially not enough. Um, And I really did like to see the nod towards the digital economy, getting a future and a a $1.2 billion funding boost there. Bryony, underemployment has been talked about by this government as a huge problem. It also has a strong relationship with low wages growth. Does this budget address any of that? I think it does. So underemployment tends to occur... Um, in sectors where there's more casual employment or part-time employment. And we see funding in two sectors, particularly aged care and childcare, where there hopefully will be more opportunity for people to take up work, take up more hours. I guess, Bryony, I was pretty surprised to see that off the back of two quarters of record low wage growth, there probably wasn't anything that was more systemically looking at trying to progress that. So do you have any advice or any thoughts around how we can actually go about driving wage growth within Australia more broadly? So I think it's important to remember that it's not actually the federal government's job to set minimum wages. That's the job of the Fair Work Commission. They do that independently. But they're taking into account the broader economic circumstances that will feed into whether or not a particular industry can sustain higher wages growth. So in terms of your question, Ben, it's got to be not just funding in relation to places, so employment places, um, but also funding within a sector like aged care, which perhaps changes the cost and reimbursement models so that employers within that sector can afford increased wages. Bryony, aged care also has a huge problem with skills shortage as well, which feeds into all of that as well. No surprises after the Royal Commission that we did see a big investment. How do you think this almost $18 billion will boost that sector in particular? Hopefully it will encourage um, more hiring to occur. I mean, that's the first thing, both in terms of um, people getting to work and and into employment, um, but also to improve the quality of care uh, outside of a conversation about about skills. It's going to be really difficult, though. Um, You know, we're focused on the money that is there. On the other side, we need to consider that a lot of employees historically within that sector have been migrant workers. So there's a real question as to what will occur if we're not having that same influx of of, uh, migrant labour to support that particular sector. More generally, when you look across the economy, and previously we've looked at the pink recession, about not having enough women in the workforce, do you think this budget goes far enough to address that issue? I think it's a start, but I think that's all it is. So I think we really need to think about whether or not the incentives are set at the right level to get women back to work or to get women working more. So if we sort of take that that step back um, to thinking about those um, more female-dominated industries like aged care and childcare, we're funding places, not wages. 
So where's the incentive? So there's there's some increase to childcare support, but is it enough? So the government is committing about $1.7 billion over four years to childcare. The estimate is that that will help around 250,000 families that are within the system. And on average, that will amount to about 2,200 a year. But if you're looking at taking that um, benefit to allow you to get back to work to a minimum wage job, is the incentive really there? That, that's, that's my question and my concern. Whilst the funding's there and the, the focus on skills is, is great, is there really, uh, are we really setting the incentives at the right level? Ben, there was a more than $2 billion commitment in this budget beyond what we've seen pre-budget to those struggling sectors, aviation, tourism, the arts and international education providers. How far will that go? Yeah, I'm always conscious about uh, whether or not we we think about spending as being sufficient or or how far it might go because budgets are all about trade-offs. But what I will say is that it is really pleasing to see government supporting these industries that have been hardest hit and which is worth calling out have disproportionately affected more women than men. The other thing about this is that these measures are in addition to what we're seeing many state governments do to stimulate similar industries. So, for example, I live in New South Wales where there's a Dine and Discover uh, voucher program for stimulating uh, a lot of uh, providers within hospitality and adjacent industries. And so we need to keep stimulating the economy. We need to keep spending, which will go a long way to affecting those effective workers, creating jobs and reducing pressure on the social welfare system as well. Bryony, we've seen COVID affect our psyche in so many ways, the way we work, the way we interact with our colleagues, but also our mental health. One thing that has been noted this year is that people, there is some evidence, have got better at asking for help, but are the structures there? Is the support there in the budget? So, so we know that workers are really feeling the pinch at the moment, particularly coming out of COVID and different ways of working, some of which have been fantastic, others which have been forced on us. So, you know, the flexible working, working from home has lacked employee agency up until this point. So our research at PwC, in fact, found that 61% of workers say that their workload has increased following COVID, interestingly. Um, This on top of market uncertainty, job losses and and mass displacement cause stress, and and they do, you're right, heighten mental health challenges. So the government's proposal to invest $2.3 billion in mental health and wellbeing is is really very much welcomed. It's got to have an impact on how people operate at work, productivity, and therefore, um, you know, go towards the bottom line. You have spoken about the skills gap in Australia. Does the budget go far enough to addressing that in the short and medium term? Yeah, Laura, the skills gap is pretty significant in Australia. And one way in which this is highlighted is that the number of job vacancies that we have now is more than double what we had pre-pandemic. And yet we know there is still a whole heap of people out there who are looking for work. So there's lots of jobs. There's lots of people looking for work, but they can't be placed, which means that there's a skills gap and they don't have the skills that we need for the jobs that are required. And so we're really going to need to see the government play a role uh, at at federal and state levels around this. And there was a lot in the budget that did uh, come at it from a skills perspective. It was predominantly towards supporting unemployed uh, individuals or those who uh, may have been impacted by COVID, as well as younger workers. So uh, a significant investment around 
the Boosting Apprenticeships Commencements Program with another 70,000 places, um, as well as supporting some of those cohorts we spoke about in terms of um, females and Indigenous girls, etc. But what I would say is is that there's potentially a gap whereby uh, we're supporting those who are currently unemployed or younger people. We're not supporting those who currently are employed um, and who may need to reskill, upskill and redeploy as well, uh, which to me says we could see a skills gap be exacerbated at that medium to higher skilled level over the medium to longer term. Bryony, what's your take on this? Because there's a few problems here in the pipeline because our borders are closed, so we're not getting those um, overseas expertise, but there's a bit of an opportunity here. It needs to be the start of a conversation because there's not that um, funding of places, and particularly we see that in terms of education. So tertiary education has missed out a little in this budget. Um, We need to think again, particularly because the university sector will be impacted by loss of migration and um, uh, students arriving in Australia. How do we fix that for the medium and long term, not just the short to medium term, particularly in terms of developing skills that we need today, but shifting our skills mindset towards innovation so that we can not just survive, but prosper into the longer term? Ben, there's significant investment around skills, but are providers positioned to embrace it? Yeah, so there's a significant uh, reform agenda that's going on more broadly within the skills system. And a lot of the investments are targeted towards vocational education. So think TAFEs, etc. But one of the sectors that was potentially underrepresented in the budget was the tertiary sector, so universities. There was $19 billion towards them, but we do know that universities are the heart of research development and innovation. But more broadly, there's a significant reform agenda going on there as well. Um, I spoke to Martin Bean, who's the Vice-Chancellor from RMIT University, and he was talking about how the curriculum needs to evolve. It's not just what we teach, but how we teach different delivery methods and also the emergence of micro-credentials as well. I think there's still question marks around where that sits and how that's going to be funded. Ben, international travel is off the cards for at least another 12 months. How does the economy cope with the constraints to skilled migration? So I think, Laura, that's where we're seeing a lot of the skills investment being targeted towards those industries that were impacted by low skilled migration and mobility. Um, So looking at funding places that will support apprenticeships and trainees in uh, construction and other sectors. Um, But again, I think that's where we might be being a little bit too short-sighted in the context of this budget. Um, But it really is looking at how we go about investing and developing local talent while also exploring the opportunities for leveraging a more global workforce with the advent of technology and less of a reliance around face-to-face interactions that's evolved over COVID. Bryony, how does this budget support the underemployed or low-income earners? So there is provision for an increase in $9 billion towards social security safety net increases for those on JobSeeker and other working age payments. That includes an increase of $50 per fortnight for working age payments expected to benefit around 1.9 million Australians. And importantly, the government's also looking to increase the income-free earnings to $150 per fortnight for people on JobSeeker and Youth Allowance, so increasing the amount that could be earned before impacting their benefits. Ben, you've spoken at length about skills. I think in the last year, everyone knows that we need to have digital skills more and more so. Does this budget go towards investing in that space? 
So within the budget, there was the the $1.2 billion investment around the digital economy more broadly. And it does have, uh, I think it was around 10,000 places focused towards digital skills as well. What I would say is, is that this is a sign the government is really starting to step into the space of the digital economy. And in future budgets, we would hope to see more happening here. But also going back to the commentary earlier around how there's not as much funding from the government around uh, supporting employed persons to reskill and upskill. This is giving a nod to industry that it's the responsibility of organisations to invest in upskilling and reskilling their people. And as a firm, we would say that one of the core and key skills you need to be investing in in your workforce is the digital literacy and foundational digital skills. Ben, that's a really good point because it's not just up to the government here, it's up to the corporate sector. But in this budget, Bryony, what is the single biggest measure that you think will have an impact on the future of work and workers or at least gives employers the ability and the space to do so? We're seeing here a pivot towards skills and new skills. Um, Yes, there's a focus on getting employers to do the heavy lifting, um, but this is something that needs to be part of the language of our budgets moving forward. Is that just um, unyielding focus on skills? Absolutely necessary to look at this from a short to medium term for now, coming out of somewhat of a crisis. Um, but I think it's if we can change the language of our budgets in future to really focus on skills and skill development over time, that's got to be a good thing for workers. Do you think it's taken the pandemic to change that language already? We're on the right trajectory? It's. I think the pandemic has, in many instances, accelerated our conversations around skills, around the way that we work, where we work, the type of work that we do. Um, so I, I think, yes, it was a conversation that we were always going to have, um, but I think it's good that we're having it now. Ben and Bryony, has the government done enough here to enable companies to support their workers? One of the interesting things about what people get paid in Australia is that we have to remember that there's been uh, quite a lot of focus over the last two to three years on wage compliance. So notwithstanding where our minimum wages have been set, employers have really struggled to get it right because of complexity within our industrial relations system. Bearing in mind that the government is beginning to think about digital skills and we see that through the budget, one of the interesting things sort of footnotes that I picked up on being being a lawyer was that the Fair Work Commission is a recipient of increased funding to allow for employers to better access real-time data and to use that data to feed into their payroll systems moving forward. So the Fair Work Commission's been given this money to, I guess, help and support in a real practical way how employers continue into the future in terms of compliance, which I think is a great thing. And I think from my perspective, if I go back to that original Treasury forecast where it was thought that unemployment could reach over 15%, we're now sitting at 5.6%. And so for me, that says that the government has gone a long way to creating the market conditions that provide confidence, that allow organisations to succeed and thrive. What I would say moving forwards, though, is that many of our clients and many organisations are still focused in this sort of horizon one thinking, the immediate economic recovery, the immediate uh, sort of response to how we get through COVID. What we need organisations and in turn the government to do is start looking towards the medium to longer term together. 
Ben, Bridie, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you just heard and want to find out more, join me, Ben Hamer, on our Future of Work podcast series, where I speak with some of Australia's most senior leaders and changemakers about what the future of work actually means for workers and organisations. Search PwC Future of Work and take a listen on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from.